Turn your Bible to 2 Samuel 23. We're getting towards the end. We're getting there. Wasn't it great to be back in Sunday school this morning? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Through the storm, we learned that Christ is Lord of all. And what we have learned during this time, more experientially, we knew it intellectually and academically, that we need each other. We need the gift of fellowship and community. And, and I think as we come out of this time and we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's going to reinvigorate us. I think just like a, an athlete who may gets burned out playing ball and then he gets injured or she gets injured and comes back and it, they, it just has a new lease on, uh, on life. And I think that's what God is going to do here and is doing here at Fisherville. But it was great to see everyone here. And if you're not in a Sunday school class, I, I hope that you will look to, to get into one. We need, we need each other. Uh, we're to spur one another on to good works, as Hebrews says. And uh, this time has reminded us of that truth more than any other time in my life and probably your life as well. Well, let's uh, pray and we'll get into our passage this morning. Lord, thank you uh, that we come to you this morning and can approach you because we have a cornerstone in Christ Jesus our Lord and we come to you in him and by your spirit and we ask today Lord that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things found in this text we pray that you would incline our hearts towards your testimonies in this text we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name by this text we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and kindness expressed supremely in your son but also beheld in this text we ask this for his sake amen well as you well know friday was the 19th anniversary of 9 11 and although it has been almost two decades for those of us who are old enough to remember that day our thoughts the details our emotions from that day are still very clear and vivid in our minds. And all of us since that time have, have thought about what those victims were thinking and feeling and going through when they knew that death was imminent. In fact, much has been written on the last words spoken of many that day who knew they were going to die in just minutes. It's been noted that more than 1,000 phone calls were made in 10 minutes from the towers after the first plane hit. In 10 minutes, 1,000 phone calls went forth from the towers. And then uh, the same thing occurred on the planes that had been hijacked, as people recognized that the, these terrorists had, had hijacked their planes and they were calling their loved ones. Uh, and, and some reached their loved ones and, and others left heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching messages. The, the saddest last words you will ever hear. You know, there's something about last words 
final words that, that, that capture our imagination like nothing else. That's why I love 2 Timothy, Paul's last words to his protege. In the case of 9-11, the last words, that they, they startle us. They grieve us. They, they deeply sadden us. But then, there are last words that are life-giving, hope-giving. We have those today in, in 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. And as we're going to see, David is grounding these hope-giving words, indeed his hope, in the covenant promise that was made directly to him from God in 2 Samuel 7, what we know as the Davidic covenant. A promise was made to David, but for different reasons, that promise is to us as well. That's why it's so important. You never move past 2 Samuel 7 once you get there. It, it serves as the table of contents for the rest of the Bible. That's why I preached through Samuel. I just felt like we, we could not fully understand our New Testament and appreciate our New Testament without recognizing the importance of the book of Samuel for understanding the New Testament. And so this text is so vital to us because these final words are grounded in that promise made to David all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. A covenant. And what we see at the very beginning of this passage is a review, kind of, of kind of a summary of the mediator of this covenant that we know to be David. Now notice with me in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Now, when you read that, it just drives home. You need to camp here. Because, uh, again, final words, last words are important, especially when you see them in the Bible. And so this is a reason for us to camp in verses 1 to 7. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, for those of you that are familiar with 1 Kings, you know that these aren't the final words of David. So what gives? Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Of course not. The Bible is inerrant, infallible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. In 1 Kings, we actually read his final words, 1 Kings chapter 2. So what gives when the text says here, these are the final words of David? Let me offer you this analogy. In August of 2004, I stood before my church in Lebanon, Ohio, northern Cincinnati, and I preached my last sermon to them. Of course, in that last sermon, afterwards, I recommended my successor. That's, I had such a great relationship with this church. It was a remarkable church. still is. And I was able to recommend a successor. I felt that comfortable, not only with my church, but with this potential successor. I recommended him after the sermon. But these were my final words to the church I pastored 
in Lebanon, Ohio. Well, within weeks, they hired the man that I recommended. And he's still there. I'm batting a thousand on recommendations. But when he was hired, I called him. And I shared words with him, encouragement to him. I charged him and tried to, to encourage him in the kind of church he was going to be pastoring. And so I spoke to the church in August in a public way, but I spoke to him privately in a kind of one-on-one conversation way. That's what we see here. These are the final public words that David shares with the people of God. Now, he will speak words to Solomon later in a one-on-one father-son relationship where he tells Solomon to be the man. I love that passage in 1 Kings chapter 2. But these are the final public words that David shares with the people of God. And as a result, they are very important to us. And the first thing we see in these final words is just a summary of who he is. And verse 1 is loaded. We could just look at verse 1 and you're going to learn a whole lot about David. The first thing we see is that he is, notice, the son of Jesse. Now, he was the youngest son of Jesse. And we learned a long time ago that Jesse was just an average man living in Bethlehem. And Jesse didn't even think at the time that David, his youngest son, was adequate enough to present him to Samuel when Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint the future king. But David's birth to Jesse, marked him. And this is most important about this description. He marked him as a Judahite. Now, why is that important? Well, we learned in Genesis 49, verse 8, that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. Jacob's final words, in fact, as he is blessing his sons, and we think he's going to choose Joseph, But he chooses Judah, and he says, the scepter will not depart. Now, what's a scepter? A scepter is a ruling staff. In other words, a king's coming. And a scepter will not depart from you until you have the obedience of the peoples. Who are the peoples? All the peoples of the earth. And so from Genesis 49 all the way through the rest of the Bible, we know the king is coming from the tribe of Judah. In fact, that's what the book of Ruth is about. The book of Ruth is not about how to to find your future spouse, though there may be some principles there for that. The book of Ruth is an apologetic. It's a defense establishing that it indeed is through Jesse that the king will come. In fact, uh, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah speaking of a day when the Messiah is going to come and make all the sad things come untrue. And he says, a stem will come from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Now, what is a stump? It's a cut-off tree. All right? So Isaiah is speaking about the fact that 
Israel and Judah is in exile. There is no king. There's no hope. In fact, the, the, the line of David is now a stump. And, and he says there's, there's coming a day when a stem will miraculously grow from a stump. Now, you don't have to have a degree in forestry to know that's a miracle. And that stem will come from that stump, the stem of Jesse. And so David here in this first description reminds us who he is. He is from Jesse's house, who is from the line of Judah. Of course, we know the line of Judah will be the very one who is the custodian of the seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent. There's a whole lot in that one description. But notice, it says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. I love that. Raised on high. David's elevation from the pasture in Bethlehem to the throne in Jerusalem causes us to marvel. Of course, when he was first anointed, there was a long period of waiting, right? There was a long season where God prepared the man, and he, he prepared him in the wilderness. He prepared him in the caves. But then there came a day in 2 Samuel 2. Here's what David asked the Lord in chapter 2, verse 1. Shall I go up into the, any of the cities of Judah? Shall I go up? In other words, is it time, Lord? And here's what the Lord said. Go up. And that was the beginning of David's exaltation. Again, he is the one who was raised on high. And then you can just do a cursory look at 2 Samuel and see God doing that very thing. Chapter 2, verse 4. And the men of Judah came there, and there they anointed king over the house of Judah. And then in chapter 5, verse 3, they anointed David king over Israel. So not only was he anointed over the house of Judah, in time he was anointed over the house of Israel. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. David took the stronghold of Zion. David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. Now, this is so hopeful for us because that's the hand of God on the king. All right? And as the king goes, what have we seen in Samuel? As the king goes, so goes the people. All right? And then, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Notice, for the sake of his people, Israel. So God exalted him for the people's sake. You cannot get past that doctrine. As one goes, as the king goes, so goes the people. And then we saw in chapter 22, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. You exalted me, verse 49, above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. And so we have seen throughout our study of Samuel that God is the one who exalted him. And that's why David says he is the man who was raised on high. And while we recognize David's unique calling, none of us will be called to be Israel's king. None of us will be 
the Messiah. All right? While we recognize David's unique calling, you need to recognize that every believer here is the fruit of the exaltation of David. Because it was through his exaltation that in time the faithful son of David would come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he would be exalted by his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And what does Paul say about that in Ephesians 2? God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. As the king goes, so goes the people. We have to remember that when we turn on the news. The news tells you you're hopeless. But as the king goes, so goes the people. The king has been exalted. He cannot be dethroned. That's our destiny. That's our reality. Notice the next thing we see here. The anointed of the God of Jacob. We've learned that that verb in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, what is it? Christ. David was Christed, to use a verb. David was Messiahed when Samuel came to him. And it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David when he anointed him, Messiahed him, and he never departed David. And in time, we learn, and we learned it in actually Hannah's song, that the Messiah will be the king. The Messiah who will deliver his people and defeat our enemies will be this king. And David is the Messiah. And notice, this was the God of Jacob's doings. I love that. The anointed of the God of Jacob. Isn't the Bible rich? Now, why would he describe God in this passage as the God of Jacob? There's so many different ways to describe him. And when we studied Genesis, we weren't real impressed with Jacob. In fact, his name means hill snatcher. So why would he describe this God this way? He is the God of Jacob. Well, Jacob was the father of the nation. He was the father of the nation, right? In fact, his name, once he was converted, would be changed to what? Israel. That's right. But God had made glorious promises to Jacob that are being fulfilled in David. Hear this promise from Genesis 35. Verse 11, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. God is telling Jacob that. That must have shocked his brother Esau. And kings shall come from your own body. In a time when no, Israel had no king, kings shall come from your own body. I believe David was musing on that promise and said, my goodness, the fulfillment of that promise is found in my home, my family, my house, my seed. Well, notice as well, he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel. We benefited this morning from that sweet psalmist, didn't we? Some of the Psalms, many of the Psalms we read this morning were the fruit of David. The sweet psalmist of David, or, or of Israel. God endowed this man 
with supernatural capacity to write songs that the people of God would meditate on, that the people of God would pray, that the people of God would sing for the rest of time. The people of God would be comforted by. The people of God would be convicted and challenged by. God endowed this man to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I think one text, and there's so many we could use here, but one I just meditated on yesterday, that helps us see the goal of David's psalms is Psalm 69. Listen to what David writes here in verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. Now think about this. Many of David's songs were written in the wilderness. And let me just offer you this. His wilderness was much more fearful than anything we've experienced in this pandemic. And instead of getting out of sorts, what would David do? He would use those times as an occasion to write spirit-inspired, authoritative songs of praise. What a great way to invest your trials. I will praise the name of God with a song. Listen to this. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, what does that mean, to magnify God? Well, let me just tell you this. We, I've heard people say, let's bring him glory. Well, you can't bring God glory. God is infinite in glory. You can't bring someone who's infinite in something, something. But we can magnify his glory. So think of it this way. If you look up in the sky... There are these magnificent, huge mammoth planets that you can't even see with the naked eye. And if you can see them, they look really small. They look like marbles, right? But what does a telescope do? A telescope magnifies that massive planet to scale. So what looks small to the naked eye now is brought to scale. David's praise, David's songs, David's poetry magnified the greatness and the glory of God so that we could behold God in the storms. What we tend to do is behold the news. And it sends us in a a downfall. David wrote these psalms in the storm to magnify God so that we could behold him in our storms. And he says, with thanksgiving. And then notice in verse 32. When the humble see it, see what? The magnification of God. When they see God magnified through David's psalms, when the humble see it, they will be glad. Isn't that glorious that's what our hearts are hardwired for we our hearts long for gladness and when we see God magnified our hearts are glad you who seek God let your hearts revive isn't that beautiful the sweet psalmist of Israel was appointed to this position so that our hearts 
would not melt in the day of adversity, but that our hearts would be glad, that our hearts would revive in the midst of turmoil. Notice as well, the, the term is not here, a prophet. Now, where do I get that from the text? Well, he says, the oracle of David. The oracle of David. So, this is implied by that word oracle. David, yes, was a king, but he was also a prophet. Oracle means declaration from God, an authoritative declaration from God. And as we've seen, you can't emphasize this too much. You sound like a broken record, but you cannot emphasize this too much. After 2 Samuel 7, so you need to really mark up your Bible, 2 Samuel 7. After 2 Samuel 7, God's oracles will now center on David and his offspring. That's why we've spent so much time in Samuel. After 2 Samuel 7, God's oracles, God's word will center on David's offspring, on his son who will come. And so it shouldn't shock us that the first four lines of David's final words center on David's identity. It's important to us. Now, having established who David is, and that's crucial, that brings us to verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Now, with the prophets, at least the three major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. We say major not because they're more important than the other prophets, but because their books are the largest, right? So the minor prophets are minor not in importance, but in size. So with these three major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, God touched their tongue at the beginning of their ministries. He was commissioning them by touching their tongues. Jeremiah 1. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel chapter 2. And what does that signal? That their primary organ of ministry would be their mouths. And in time, the pen as what they speak is inscripturated. And what's stressed here is the identity between the words of God and the words of the prophet. All right? We could call it the identity thesis. Uh, there was a movement in Southern Baptist life with moderates to liberals who said that the Bible contained the Word of God. But we recognize what Scripture says about itself. And if we can't trust what the Scripture says about itself, we can't trust what it says about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We can't trust what it says about the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of Scripture teaches us the Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. All right? So what God says, the Scripture says. And what the Scripture says, God says. 
And this expresses what we would mean by, let me give you a new term for some of you, verbal plenary inspiration. There are moderates and liberals who say, well, there are errors in the Bible, but, but the concepts, the, the concepts and the ideas are inspired. You just got to work around, you got to eat around the bones. All right? Well, that, that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches verbal plenary inspiration. Every word is breathed out, inspired of God. You ever been to a conference, you have a plenary session. What's a plenary session? When all the people at this conference gathered together, in other words, in totality, all God's word, the scripture, 66 books of the canon, is inspired of God. And there is dual authorship. The human author speaks, the divine author speaks, and those two authors are never, ever in conflict. And so the mouth, in this particular case, was David. The words were God's. Words that came from David's personality. David's background. Think about this. David was likely a very creative person with literary abilities before he was even endowed by the Spirit. And then God took this man who had natural giftings and the Spirit of God came upon him. Okay? And so we see his personality. We see his background. We see his experiences come out in the text. So it's David's words, but it's God's word. A good analogy is the person of Christ. God, Jesus Christ is fully man, and he is fully God in one person. And the text, the Bible, is fully a document written by human beings, but it is God's word in its totality. What Paul meant in 2 Timothy 3 when he says all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. And therefore is profitable. Well, that's what David is getting at here. And this is critical because the word of God comes on a rescue mission. That's the purpose of the word of God. God gives us this word not so that we can win debates on the blogosphere. Not so that we can win debates on Facebook. He gives us this word to transform us, all right, to save us. Because prior to this revelation, every thought we have about God is idolatrous. We need a revelation from God. And that's what David is establishing here before he gets into the very heart of what this final word is. And that brings us to the heart of this final word from David. So he's established who he is. And his credentials, he's established the fact that the Spirit of God came on him. And so this isn't just human conjecture. This isn't just human opinion. And now he's going to get at the heart of this glorious final word for us. Notice in the second part of verse 3. So he said, the rock of Israel. I love that metaphor. The rock. He is stable when nothing else is. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now, let me just say literally, 
this means, verse, the second part of verse 3, a ruler over humankind, a righteous one, a ruler in the fear of God. He's about to lay out something that speaks greater than him. We're going to see that. David recognizes at this point, at the end of his life, he's not the hope of the world. All right? Now, he has seen God move in his ministry. Uh, largely speaking, David's ministry, his reign was a righteous reign. But we know from 2 Samuel 7, David is not the, the ultimate Messiah. It's going to be a faithful son. And so what David is doing here, he's prophesying. He's looking forward to the one who will come. In other words, this is an announcement. This is a promise with four parts. First of all, David sees a ruler coming from his line. When one rules justly over men, his rule will be over all of humankind. That word man, let me give you the, the Hebrew word. You may recognize this word, Adam. That's the Hebrew word there. So he's referring here not just to ethnic Israel. He's referring to all the world. Okay? This one will come who will rule over all the world, which was a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, where God told Abraham, your seed will bless the nations. And we recognize this seed is this one man, this ruler who will come. And he's going to rule over all humankind. Of course, we saw that in the Davidic covenant when he says this is instruction for mankind. This is Torah for Adam. 2 Samuel 7 verse 19. Third, this ruler will be righteous. And then fourth, this ruler will be characterized by the fear of God. David has shown semblances of righteousness. But it's certainly not been a perfect, consistent righteousness, has it? He has shown semblances of the fear of God. But this one will come and he will demonstrate the fear of God comprehensively. And what is the fear of God? It's just the proper response to God given the revelation of God, of who He is. Now notice, we need a king like this for what verse 4 says. Unless we have a king like that, verse 4 can't come to, to fruition. Notice in verse 4, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, notice verse 4, this is so important. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So such a rule by such a ruler is compared with three Glorious experiences that every single one of us, in fact, every image bearer in the history of the world has experienced. First of all, the early morning when light dawns. So what is that conveying? He invades darkness. With this ruler, in the midst of darkness, light comes. Dawn comes, okay? No matter how dark it is, his light is undefeated. All right? In fact, the darker it is, the more you appreciate that light. All right? And so, this ruler comes, and he comes like the early morning when dawn, light dawns. All right? Second, the warmth of the sun 
on a cloudless day, cloudless morning. Now think about this. It's frigid. And all of a sudden, the sun comes out. And, and it warms everything. All right? And so he's picturing something for us. All right? Darkness and then frigid, a frigid atmosphere. And then third, rain that enables grass to sprout even after a long drought. All right? So he's describing a, a world post-fall that needs this kind of ruler. And all three of these elements are necessary for healthy growth of plants. Or life would cease in, for the people of God. This righteous ruler has an equally vital part to play. In fact, in Psalm 72, Solomon writes, Psalm 72, who's Solomon? He's David's son. And he's an initial fulfillment of that promise, but he's not the one. He loves concubines, right? But Solomon writes in Psalm 72 these words. He's meditating on this passage. I love it. May he, who's he? The one who's coming. Solomon knows he's not the one. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea. In other words, his reign and rule is going to extend beyond the borders of Israel it's going to extend to the ends of the earth. May he have dominion from sea to sea long. Verse 15, may he live. Solomon is writing greater than he knows. I don't think he fully recognizes at this point that long will he live because he will be raised from the grave and immortality will swallow up. That which is mortal. So David and Solomon say this son will come from their house. Notice in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? That's not referring to his physical structure. That's referring to his, his family, his line, his seed, his offspring. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now that's a long time. He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things. And here's a word for us when we think the whole country is about to be burned down. Ordered in all things and secure. You know what that word means in Hebrew? It means secure. All right? Meditate on that. Secure. As the king goes, so goes the people. Which means secure. Let that replace your anxiety and your frustrations. For he will, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? And so his reference to the house points back all the way to 2 Samuel again. In verse 11, the Lord will make you a house. Nathan had told David that. And then in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. 
And so this is a forever covenant. Or to use our text, this is an, un, an everlasting covenant. But here's the dilemma. And this is a real dilemma. The covenant with David had unconditional and conditional elements blended together. In fact, that's, it's due to that very reality that we have a tension in our text. Not a contradiction, a tension. There's conditional and unconditional elements to this covenant. And so in one sense, the covenant was unconditional. God has promised. And he would ensure that covenant would be fulfilled by his power and his grace. But there was a conditional aspect to this covenant. It demanded, as we saw, an obedient son. It demanded an obedient covenant partner. In other words, how can be, and this is the tension, this is the question, how can God be true to the promise to David that he would have a son on a throne forever while being true to the requirement of an obedient king? Indeed, no sooner has this promise been made, the next thing you know, David is having an affair and killing his mistress's husband. Well, the answer to that question is also the answer to the question to how this text applies to us. All right? David's covenant hope is related to our covenant hope the way an acorn is related to an oak tree. All right? An acorn becomes and grows and becomes a grand oak tree. The acorn is no less of an oak tree than the oak tree. It has all the DNA of an oak tree. All right? And hence the same hope for us. You know, it's interesting. The New Testament kicks off with these words. Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. You think this is important? The son of David. That's not a coincidence. The New Testament begins with those words. Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus came as the son of David from the line of Jesse, from the line of Judah. And he came, and Matthew 3.15 tells us he fulfilled all righteousness. There's your answer. How can God be faithful to David's promise, the promise made to David, while requiring an obedient son? The son has come, and he came and he fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed God where you and I never obeyed God fully. He loved God when you and I never fully loved God. He loved his neighbor when you and I never fully love our neighbor. He fulfilled all righteousness. In Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So he fulfilled all the terms of the covenant. But here's the question. This kingdom is promised not just to a king. It's promised to people. But here's the problem. We're sinful. We're wicked. So how can people like us get into that kingdom? We know how Jesus can be in that kingdom. He fulfilled all righteousness. 
How can we get into that kingdom? Well, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? To get into this kingdom, you must be born again. That's how you get into this kingdom. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus, as the faithful son, went to the cross. And as our substitute, God's wrath on our sin was poured out on him. And for those who are born again and trust in Jesus, the terms of the covenant have been fulfilled. You now stand before God, righteous in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith. And that payment that we owe for our sin, it's already been paid. It's paid by this Son of God. And this is our hope. In fact, Jesus said the night before his cross, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. And this is so hopeful for all of us. Because no one can just simply look at the news today and deduce the righteous ruler is currently and presently reigning. All right? No. Our world appears to be plummeting in anarchy. We could never deduce kingdom hope from the optics of things. And David tells us because the spirit of the Lord is on his tongue, it's a matter of revelation. It's a matter of a revelation from God, and this is better than any circumstantial assurance we have. That brings us to the final part of this passage. We'll go through quickly. This is glorious hope for every believer in here. But it's not hope for everyone. All right? This is not hope for everyone. This passage ends with some gruesome warnings. Because this mediator of the covenant who's going to bring blessing, there's also going to be curses brought upon those who do not receive his provision. Notice with me in verse 6. But worthless men, that's a term that's been used, Samuel, a lot, are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron. Who's the man? He's the ruler. And the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. You see these people right now parading in the streets, Carrying on, if they don't repent of their sins, this is their destiny. All right? But it's also the destiny of the moralist who has never trusted in this king. Now, this is a sobering, closing analogy. Isn't it interesting that David's final words end in something so fearful? Why would he end with such a negative note? Because he understands that there's a judgment coming. And, and he likened the destiny of the wicked to the fates of weeds in a farmer's field. Both the weeds in that field and the wicked will be killed with a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, verse 7, and would be burned up by who? This king. By this king. 
Because only those who are made fit for the kingdom can enter that kingdom. Those who reject the terms of the king will not enter that kingdom. And this is their destiny. In other words, this is the other side of God's covenant in action. God graciously saves those who bow the knee to the king. But he justly judges the unrepentant. And so the kingdom of God, let's close here, involves both salvation and judgment. And David, at the end of his life, in his final words, don't lose the importance of that. He's encouraging the people of God. You have something very sure and secure. And there's nothing you can watch on the news. There's nothing that can happen in this city. Nothing that can happen in this country or world that can take that away. No matter what they claim. It's a word of encouragement to you. But it's also a word of warning for those who are not committed to this king. In fact, Jesus understood this passage to be fulfilled in him. That's why he says, I am the light of the world. John 8. He's the dawning light. As this text prophesies. And then he, he gives us this parable. Where he compares Matthew 13. The wicked to weeds that will be burned. That's. Jesus meditating on this passage. And the only security in that day, the only security, but it's all the security you need, will come through faith in the blood of this king who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and delivers us from the wrath of God to come. 1 Thessalonians 1. David's final words are foundational words for us all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for David's final words. We pray that these words, in spite of the preacher, would take full effect in the hearts of your people today. I pray that these words would encourage, would edify, would teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. And for those, Lord, that have never trusted in Jesus, I pray the warning here at the very end would sober them into repentance and a committed faith in this King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners. And we pray today your name would be magnified in our proper response to this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.